Well, good morning. Um, I just wanted to start uh, start this morning with a little question, maybe a little tongue in cheek. Are you feeling strong this morning? what I want to ask you today. If I told you that you had a fight ahead of you this morning, how would you react? Does the idea terrify you? The idea of conflict to make you uneasy? That little fear, the voice in your back of your head that says you aren't up for a fight? That might be just too much. Or on the other hand, are you just itching for a fight? That chance to see what you're made of, ready to take on all challengers, take a couple of hits, sure, but to give as good as you get. Maybe a more insensitive way of asking this question is, are you a wimp or are you a warrior? Man, such a hostile question for a Sunday morning, right? But it's poignant for us as we finish up Ephesians. We've made it to the end. We've, this is our 18th week in Ephesians, looking at what it means to be the church in a world that is still struggling under these just stubborn powers of the world and the devil and the flesh. So we ask ourselves this question as we wrap up that conversation Because I'm here to tell you, you do indeed have a fight ahead of you. And however you respond to that, the things that we need to hear. Paul here, I think, gives encouragement for us wimps and some warnings for us warriors. Here at the end of his letter, he calls us to war. And it's actually this this really neat ending in a literary sense. He started this whole letter, if you remember, addressing the Ephesian church, acknowledging that they feel this oppression under the evil powers that he calls the world, the devil, and the flesh. These powers that had full authority over them in their sin and brokenness after the fall as children children of disobedience. And he works through this letter to show them, first, that the God of the covenant is unfathomably more powerful than the world and the devil and the flesh. And second, that the ultimate display of God's power was not an act of creation or an act of warfare, but in the incarnation and the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And third, he called us, or he tells us that all that's done is done specifically so that those who believe can die to their old selves, rise in Christ, no longer, no longer sons and daughters of disobedience, but sons and daughters of God, heirs of this great power. And then he tells us how we can live in light of this great power, actually 
to live in this great power. And then here at the end, he returns to this picture of these malignant powers. He names them again, and then he calls us in very unsubtle military language to stand and fight. Actually, he uses the word stand four times in this passage. Emphatic that we don't back down to these powers that once oppressed us. And in this call, he wants to make sure of a couple of things. First, that the overconfident warriors in the room know that this fight is a real one. That the powers of evil are real and deadly. Second, that those who are fearful know that they in fact have a power at their disposal to engage in that fight. And finally, that we understand whose power it is that we use so that we might look to him for victory. The first thing that he stresses to his readers is the reality of the powers that oppose them. He doesn't use light language here. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He can't paint a much bigger picture of what the fight is against. Returning to this language that the Ephesians would have known, naming these evil powers. And for the Ephesians, it kind of went without saying. Remember, they were aware of evil. They lived in a world where evil was acknowledged. In fact, they continued in fear and submission to the world and the devil and the flesh, and that was one of the reasons for this letter. So few of them would have shrugged off the reality of evil, though, Paul contrasting the power of the flesh, the power of flesh and blood to this power is important for them. And it's important for us. But for us, we don't take those things very seriously, do we? Uh, a couple of other preachers took a whole week to preach just that section because most of us need it. <laughs> We struggle with the reality of spiritual powers of the devil and evil because we're logical people, right? We don't believe in this kind of non-scientific mumbo-jumbo. Actually, I think, at least in my experience, those of us in the Pacific Northwest, um, our culture outside of the church might believe in this stuff more than we do. That was definitely the case in Eugene. But many of our non-believing neighbors might be more willing to acknowledge that there are evil forces behind the veil than even we are. So let me say this in the clearest of terms, evil is real. The devil is real, like a real, personal, evil, malignant entity intent on our destruction. 
And the powers of the world and the flesh, while they seem more logical, more scientifically measurable, these enemies of society and the self, they are far more powerful than our naturalistic view would suggest. And the warrior types in the room, we need to hear this. Those of us who are ready to strap on our armor and do battle, we often feel confident precisely because we underestimate our enemy. We need to hear that these powers are real. And that in our weakness, in ourselves, we cannot prevail. Like, I can't defeat the devil. I like to talk a big game. But he's more powerful than I am. I can't defeat the world, not just because culture is bigger than me and I'm just one person, but also because it's bound to the power of evil and sin and I am too weak to conquer that power. I can't even defeat the flesh. Because even there, I'm too weak. Because I, myself, and my flesh am bound to the power of evil and sin. So we have to check our confidence. This is not a small fight. This is a fight against real forces of evil. It's not a metaphor. It's not an allegory. It's not clever language. It's literal. And if you are confident in your own ability to win that fight, you're a fool. That means the wimps are right, right? I've convinced myself I'm going to turn in my weapons of war and cower in the corner now. How can we ever expect to win the fight? Well, if you've been with me for the last 17 weeks, or you've heard the gospel preached anywhere else, you might have an idea. <laughs> I cannot overcome this evil with my own feeble power. I can never expect to rise up and overcome these oppressors. I'm a child of disobedience in my flesh, firmly under the thumb of the world and the devil in the flesh. But, but, and Paul used that but so emphatically early on, remember? But I have died with Christ. We have died with Christ, and we share in his resurrection. And in Christ, in this resurrection, in being new people, we have access to a power that is greater than what we wielded in our own flesh. A power greater than the world and the devil and the flesh. Because we don't struggle in our own strength, but Christ struggles in us. And here Paul takes up his famous metaphor, envisioning putting on an armor to go into battle. This expanded illustration, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, and then finally, almost as if it's a magical power in itself, prayer. And for those of you who love application, there's a lot of practical wisdom here. 
And for those of you who just want the gospel, all of that practical wisdom boils down to our reliance on Christ. So let's get into it. Uh, practically speaking, and I love this, one preacher uh, looked at these, these categories of armor and he broke them into three categories. The first category by itself is the belt of truth. And he says this is the underlying armor. And we don't quite see it in the English. Belt doesn't quite capture the Greek. Uh, Really, it says gird your waist, which we don't understand either. But in the ancient, ancient armor had a waistcoat, a waistcoat that went underneath everything. It went from the shoulder down and all of the rest of the armor was fashioned to it. And in this, Paul sees truth as the foundation of the armor that we wear. And what is that truth, that underlying reality that all of our defenses are tied to? Well, because we don't read this in a vacuum, it's everything that we've read. In chapters one to six, The truth is who we are in Jesus Christ. The truth is our salvation, our inheritance, our death and resurrection in Jesus Christ. More than anything else, we stand in Christ by knowing the truth, who he is, what he has done, and who that makes us. Other commentators suggested that putting on the truth in this way is to take an objective outside truth of the gospel that we hear and we make it a subjective inside truth. To take what we've learned and we know it in a way that undergirds everything that we do. The truth of the gospel is this. If you are in Jesus, you cannot be defeated by the world and the devil and the flesh. And to stand firm, you must know and believe this beyond anything else. And the second category of armor are the breastplate, the shoes, the shield, and the helmet. This was called the basic kit. These other armor pieces were our basic operations gear if we're a soldier. They protect the soldier against attacks. And Paul names these righteousness, peace, faith, and salvation. These are the things that defend against the attacks of the evil one. And if we break these things down, they lay really well over the message that Paul has already delivered us. Righteousness, the way that we walk in purity and peace. The gospel of peace, that reality that we have become one together in him. Faith and salvation, our trust in his power And in the fact that he has used this power for us. What Paul is really speaking of is really what he's spoken of in the last couple chapters. Walking in Christ, practicing discernment, walking in the unity and discipline of community, hearing, praising, 
and owning the power of God and his work for us. What we find when we walk in this way is that this kind of life stands against the flaming arrows of evil as we walk with Jesus Christ. And the third category of our outfit includes the sword and prayer. These are the tools of the fight. You're going to have to hold on on prayer for a second because we're going to have to get our heads around that one. But these go beyond the basic protection of armor. These are the offensive tools. Not just to stave off the attacks of the enemy, but actually to push back. To advance the kingdom against those evil powers of the world and the devil and the flesh. Swords we get. We don't use them so much anymore, but we've all seen enough movies. And Paul offers the word of God as our tool for fighting against evil. But he also offers prayer, and he doesn't give us this illustration. He just says prayer. And we don't get this so much today, but in the ancient world, prayer was a tool for battle. In a world where the spiritual and magical were accepted, prayer was a mighty weapon. Read the Old Testament. It is full of curses being called out on enemies and blessings being prayed over armies. We don't see this as an offensive weapon, but Paul's audience would have understood that it was. And Paul wants us to see that while the knowledge of the truth undergirds everything that we do, and righteousness and peace and faith protect us from the attacks of evil. It is the word and prayer that take the fight to the enemy. I know it's going to sound cliche, but cliches become cliches for a reason. But the point of the spear for the believer is the word of God and prayer. It just is. We spend time in the scriptures and we pray. We study the word together and we pray. We hear the word preached together and we pray. And it's these practices actually that put us in communication with our king and our savior. Communication lines open with our commander. And with that, we push back the enemy. And quite simply... If you desire victory over the powers of the world and the devil and the flesh in your life, not just safety, but victory, they will come only as you utilize these tools together as the church. And Paul believes in this so much that he finishes this letter sitting in prison by calling on the church of Ephesus to pray for him and to pray for the saints. And what does he pray? <laughs> Not that he gets out of prison. He prays that they might fight well. 
He prays that they may have opportunities to fight and win victories for the kingdom of Jesus. He says, pray that, wor that words may be given to me in opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Pray not that I would be protected from the emperor. Pray not that I would be freed from my prison cell, but pray that I might go out and speak the gospel and advance the kingdom and this world that we're fighting in. That's a bold request. Listen, in our own strength, we have no hope <laughs> against the powers of evil. But Paul tells us that we are given the tools for this fight. that you're putting on this armor that is given to you by God. These weapons that are given to you by God, and in that you can stand, and more than stand, you can boldly proclaim the kingdom of Christ and see that kingdom win battles until our great king returns to bring his kingdom to earth in full. And of course, that's not a simple call. The walk we're called to is difficult, yes? Truth is hard to believe among the loud claims against it, among the things in this world that seem to be contradictory to what we hear. Righteousness and peace and faith are difficult to walk in as we wrestle with our flesh on a daily basis. And the word and prayer, that's actually a pretty hard weapon to wield. It seems so easy just to dismiss them for other tools. If I'm completely honest with you all, when I see what the armor of God really is, and I think of taking it up, it feels ill-fit for me. It feels way too heavy for me. Like putting it on would crush me. I have that picture in my mind of, of little David being given Saul's armor and not being able to move in it. How can we win this fight if the armor of God seems so heavy that it would crush us? Well, here's the secret underneath all of it that Paul's been telling us the whole time. This armor wasn't actually made for me. See, well, we, we, read this, we read this passage and we read it in the context of Ephesus and we think, oh, this is just a cool illustration for a Roman world. You know, they would have seen Roman soldiers and, oh, I can see. Here's the funny thing. Uh, interpreters have struggled with this passage um, and the illustration, because it seems like a bad illustration. I don't know what you know about Roman armor, but this suit of armor doesn't look like a Roman suit of armor. There's some missing pieces. There's some extra pieces. Because Paul wasn't actually picturing Roman soldiers when he wrote this. Paul's actually picturing something that a lot of the people reading this letter would have never seen. He was picturing the ancient armor of the Israelites. Israelites. 
This is an ancient armor set. And he chooses this picture over a more understandable Roman picture for a reason. Because throughout the Old Testament, God, Yahweh, was depicted over and over again as the divine warrior. He was the great warrior king who fought for his people against their enemies. By the time we get to the prophets, this picture of the divine warrior is being cast forwards as the image for the Messiah, saving the people of God from their enemies once and for all. Isaiah in particular uses this language and Paul's picture of putting on the armor of God um, is drawn from a passage in Isaiah. This is Isaiah 59, 15 through 19. Isaiah says, truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself pray. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment so that they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. Isaiah opens up with really a picture of our reality apart from Jesus. There was no one to intercede. We were oppressed by the powers of sin, the world, the devil, and the flesh. They owned us, and there was nothing we could do. But what does God do here in Isaiah? He takes up the armor himself. He sends his son to be the divine warrior to bring salvation. We struggle, we fail, we are hit by the arrows of the devil and we fall on the battlefield. But our divine warrior picks us up and rushes ahead of us in battle to save us. And in that, he calls to fight with him. And that means we must put on the armor and fight. And that armor would fit us poorly unless we understand the truth that was running underneath the book of Ephesians the whole time. The center of his argument, really the center of everything Paul ever says, that we are not just with Christ in this battle. We are in Christ. We are doing more than putting on his armor as some ill-fitting outfit. Throughout this letter, we have been told not that we learn the power of God, but that we are heirs of it. Not that we become like Jesus, but that we become alive in Jesus. Whatever illusions 
we carry that Christianity is just about following Jesus and living like Jesus and doing what Jesus does, we have to drop them. The truth is much bigger, much more radical than that. In Jesus Christ, we are resurrected into his body. We are alive in his body. We are his body. We are becoming not like the one who the arm was made for. We are becoming him. And in him, we can wear this armor and we can join in the fights. And those of you who are now just pumped for this fight, be cautious because there are some really obvious implications here. If we're going to fight with Jesus because we're fighting in Jesus, we have to fight like Jesus. And Jesus came and took up this prophetic mantle of the divine warrior and he confused people. Because most in Israel read these prophecies and assumed, in fact, they were certain that when the Messiah came, he would come decked out in armor, he would come wielding a sword, he would come running out the Romans. He would be a military leader who would overthrow the enemies of Israel, right? In Isaiah's day, that was people like Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. But these were never the enemies that the divine warrior was to do battle with. Because the real enemies of God are sin and evil. They are the world, the devil, and the flesh. This is why in the Old Testament, when Israel, the people of God, turned away from God to idolatry, the divine sword was actually turned on them. We'll hear a lot more about this in Habakkuk. Jesus didn't come to overthrow Rome. He came to overthrow the evil power of this world. He didn't come to overthrow the emperor. He came to overthrow the evil power of the devil. He didn't come to overthrow some sinful group of people. He came to overthrow the evil power of the flesh. He didn't come to overthrow whatever Roman culture that we live in today. Whatever emperor we are under or whatever sinner we find distasteful, he came to overthrow evil. And he didn't do that with armies. He did that with a band of misfits. He didn't do it with weapons. He did it with love and compassion. And he didn't do it with conquest. He did it with sacrifice. So warriors, this analogy does not ever call you to some militant stance against your culture, against your leaders, or against your neighbor. It just doesn't. That's not how Jesus stood against evil. Actually, often, taking that posture puts us in the category of the evil that Jesus is standing against. We are called to a harder battle of walking in truth and righteousness and peace and faith and salvation and the word and prayer. And it will be a battle full of sacrifice, full of humility, and full of love. Because this is how the divine warrior fought. And we are fighting as his army, 
in his armor. And so we stand in his way. Brothers and sisters, you're called to put on the full armor of God and to prepare to stand in this fight. To do so, you have to look to Jesus Christ, your king and your commander, to understand how this armor is to fit and be wielded, to understand what life in him looks like. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I confess that I myself uh, swing like a pendulum between absolute fear of serving you and absolute arrogance in the way I think I'm doing it. I somehow am both a wimp and a warrior in my life, and I'm sorry. I pray, God, that you would teach me what it means to walk in your son, to take up the way that he did battle. To understand what his righteousness and justice and peace and love looked like. And I pray this for all of us. I pray this for your church here at Grace, but also your church universal. That you would turn us into men and women and children who stand firm in Jesus Christ and in nothing else. We pray this for the sake of your kingdom and your glory. In the name of your Son, amen.